Hello and welcome to the Save the Water podcast. Save the Water is a U.S.-based nonprofit. Our mission is to conduct water research to raise public awareness about water contamination and its human and environmental health impacts. In this podcast, we interview professionals in the water industry to learn more about water quality issues and some of the solutions they use to combat water contamination. So, without further ado, my name is Kylie, and let's dive in. I'm here today with a truly brilliant and passionate woman that is really making a difference in the water treatment industry, Julie Bliss Mullen. Hey, Julie, how are you? Hi, I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm very excited to have you here. It really is a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So for starters, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your involvement in the water industry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was born and raised in Massachusetts and ended up going to get my um, undergrad in Massachusetts, um, a university called Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And um, at first I kind of wanted to be a doctor and then I kind of quickly realized after getting involved in an organization called Engineers Without Borders um, that I wanted to be an engineer. And so uh, essentially with Engineers Without Borders, we were working with a rural community in Guatemala and they had water quality issues Um, and they were getting sick and they knew it was from the water, but they didn't really know how to treat it or, or what they could do in order to, um, to have sustainable water throughout the whole year and then also have clean water. So, um, when I started college, I said I wanted to be a doctor and then I switched over and I, I ended up, um, first going for environmental policy and water policy. And then, like I said, I, I traveled, actually traveled a couple times to Guatemala to, to uh, work with this company, this, this, this um, community. And uh, I realized that I wanted to also be an engineer. <laughs> so I changed my mind a lot of times. Um, and, uh, and I really wanted to help them to, to design um, water treatment systems. So I, um, I graduated WPI with a degree in environmental and sustainability studies. And that was, that was on the policy side and also in environmental engineering. Um, and I stayed for a little while to do some graduate work, um, really tried to understand from a, from a pure lab research side, conventional water treatment technologies. And I also, while I was an undergrad, had an internship at the US EPA in Boston in their drinking water unit. So kind of all this came together and I really, yeah, I really decided I wanted to focus my career in, um, in water. At the time, drinking water. Now I'm in drinking water and wastewater and hazardous waste. In 2014, I decided I wanted to go for a PhD. So I started a PhD program at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And I and like I said, I had looked at conventional water treatment technologies, which I can talk about. Um, but I really wanted to look at some innovative and new water treatment technologies that could be affordable, um, that used low maintenance, and that actually destroyed contaminants, as opposed to filtering them or, or putting them into some kind of um, liquid brine that needed to be managed further. So. Um, I did that, and in pursuing my PhD, I um, filed a patent with the university on a new technology, 
um, the technology is, is classified as electrochemical. And then in 2017, I decided I really wanted to make sure that this, this technology wasn't just going to kind of rot away on the bench um, and in, you know, and in academic papers. And I really wanted to, you know, commercialize it. Um, so I started taking a couple business courses um, at the Eisenberg School of Management. And I met um, a co-founder who was an MBA student at the time. And the two of us um, co-founded Clarity in 2017. Uh, we've since grown the company to um, eight employees, which is really exciting. And um, we have pilots, pilots have going and are you know, really working hard to solve a lot of water quality issues around the world. As Julie mentions, she designed and patented a new water treatment technology during her studies towards a PhD. This technology utilizes electrochemistry. But wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. In order to understand how this technology really works, we need to know three main things. First, we need to understand the water cycle. Second, we need to know types of water contaminants and different methods used to treat these contaminants. And third, we need to understand the drawbacks or inefficiencies of conventional water treatment methods. First, let's start with the water cycle. Julie explains the water cycle and water treatment within the water cycle, starting at the faucet. We will follow this water through the pipe network to the water treatment facility and back into the home. So there's water that you drink from the tap, from, you know, you shower in water and that goes either to an on-site septic system or it goes through pipes to a wastewater treatment plant. And that water is treated, right? Um, it's treated mostly to get rid of nitrogen and phosphorus, you know, bacteria and viruses. Um, and then for the most part, it's discharged to some kind of river or, or some kind of surface water. Before we continue with the water cycle, it is important to understand the difference between a drinking water treatment facility and a wastewater treatment facility. Julie starts the water cycle in the home. We take showers, we drink water, we flush toilets, and that water gets sent to the wastewater treatment facility. It specifically treats wastewater. Another source of wastewater comes from industrial and manufacturing facilities where they generate a lot of harsh chemicals that at times need specific and stronger treatment. After the wastewater is treated, it's tested to ensure that it is safe and clean to discharge into surface water, like streams or reservoirs, where we get our drinking water resources. Now, let's jump back into the stream and follow the water to the drinking water treatment facility to learn a little bit more about water treatment. When I say discharge, I just mean um, it's, it's released. Um, and so that goes into back into the environment and people fish and swim and, you know, recreate in that water. And obviously there's aquatic species that live there too. You know, once, once the water is then evaporated and stored in the clouds, and then it's, you know, precipitated and um, it comes down as rain. A lot of the rain seeps through the ground and it goes into to aquifers and groundwater. 
uh, and some of the water stays on the surface if it's in a lake or a reservoir. Um, and that's typically where your drinking water comes from. So either lakes, reservoirs, or groundwater. What a drinking water treatment plant will do is they, uh, they pump that water to the treatment plant. There's typically um, filtration, you know, immediate filtration to, to um, screen particles. And then they, you know, they get rid of what we call natural organic matter, which is really just plant matter. They get, they get rid of that. Um, and then they end up doing some disinfection or, or advanced treatment um, to get rid of some chemicals, if there may be chemicals in the water. Disinfection most commonly is done with chlorine. Uh, it's also done with ozone, uh, which is a gas. It's, a, it's an oxygenated form gas, essentially. Um, or it's done with UV light. So the water passes through UV light um, and is dis disinfected with the, the UV um, rays, essentially. And then that goes right back to your house, right? Or your house or office, um, anywhere that, that uses water. And that's essentially the water cycle and the water process. So drinking water is pumped from streams, rivers, lakes, and groundwater, sent to the drinking water treatment facility, and goes through these more conventional types of treatment that Julie mentions. The initial filtration process sends the water through some screens to take out any larger size particles that exist, such as trash, sediment, debris. They then use disinfection methods to clean the smaller organic and inorganic contaminants that may be present in the water. This is most commonly done with chlorine, but can also be done with ozone and ultraviolet light. Commonly used categories of contaminants in water are organic and inorganic. What exactly is the difference between the two, and what are some examples? Hmm. That's a good question. So, um, so by definition, organic molecules or organic contaminants contain carbon. Um, they, they oftentimes will contain oxygen, um, hydrogen. Um, examples of organic contaminants would be bacteria and viruses. Um, th those are, they're living, um, but they're also organic. And then there's also non-living organic molecules, um, things like solvents, um, surfactants, uh, pharmaceuticals, pesticides. Um, there's, a, there's a compound that is really gaining interest in the water space, and it's called, it's abbreviated, called PFAS. Um, it stands for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, um, and they're, they're a Teflon product. Um, if you look up PFAS in, in the news, you'll, you'll find that PFAS is essentially everywhere, um, and it's toxic, and it's in people's blood. Uh, I don't mean to scare you, but, it, but that's the reality of it. And, um, and so, you know, a lot of especially innovative technologies are trying to address a lot of these organic um, chemicals also living organics, um, and then some of these contaminants of emerging concern, which is, which is the technical term in the industry, um, like PFAS. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you've been keeping up, we've heard of PFAS from each guest that has been on the podcast so far. PFAS fall under the list of contaminants of emerging concern. This is a term used by water quality professionals to describe pollutants that have been detected in water bodies that may cause ecological or human health impacts, 
and are typically not regulated under current environmental laws. In past episodes, I talk about PFAS and ways that it is harmful, as well as ways to protect you, your loved ones, and the environment, so make sure to go back and listen. So we know PFAS fall under the category of organic contaminants. We've learned that organic contaminants, by definition, are carbon-based. They can be living, like bacteria, and non-living, like pesticides. Let's find out about inorganic compounds. Inorganic contaminants can be classified in metals and non-metals. Um, Common metals include arsenic and lead and copper and iron and manganese. Um, And then inorganics can be, you know, cyanide or ammonia, um, which is actually they're both nitrogen um, compounds. So at a water treatment facility, do water quality professionals consider different methods of treatment for organic versus inorganic contaminants? Whether it's organic or inorganic, typically um, you characterize them in water treatment and wastewater treatment by the way that they react. So organic chemicals and contaminants react very differently than inorganic chemicals um, and contaminants for the most part. That makes sense. You wouldn't treat an infection in your body the same way you would treat, say, lead poisoning. Since organic and inorganic contaminants react differently, what are some of the treatment methods that they use for both? Um, most living organic contaminants um, are bacteria and viruses and cysts. And those are typically degraded, we call it disinfection. They're, they're disinfected by chlorine, ozone, potentially hydrogen peroxide, uh, and UV light, as I was talking about before. In the non-living organics, like these are solvents and surfactants and pharmaceuticals and personal care products and uh, so many others, you may still be able to use the disinfectants that I talked about, but oftentimes it requires stronger, stronger what's called an oxidant. And the, the oxidants are essentially the chemicals that, are, that break down these, these um, they're chemicals that break down chemicals, which is actually really confusing, but um, these, are, these are good chemicals that break down bad chemicals. Um, chlorine can be one, right, and all, all the others that I, that I discussed. Um, but oftentimes you have to combine um, these types of technologies to get better performance or to get better removal of contaminants. For example, you know, you could have UV um, and hydrogen peroxide or UV and ozone together. Maybe they may be really effective in removing some of the more difficult, some more recalcitrant, um, non-biodegradable um, chemicals in water. That's, that's an example of advanced oxidation processes. A lot of those advanced oxidation technologies can also remove and or destroy inorganics, so, you know, such as cyanide and ammonia uh, and others. Hmm. So advanced oxidation processes is a lot for anyone, but especially if you are not in the water industry. So you do a really great job describing advanced oxidation processes. 
In a broad sense, these are a set of combined chemical treatment procedures designed to remove organic and some inorganic contaminants in wastewater. Besides ozone, chlorine, and ultraviolet light, what are some other water treatment technologies? There are some other conventional water and wastewater treatment technologies that are used to remove organics and some, and some inorganic nonmetals. Um, and those would be uh, granular activated carbon, which is what we call an adsorbent. GAC, uh, or granular activated carbon, when chemicals come close to the carbon, they stick to the carbon. And so it's, it's a really good way of filtering out some chemicals. Um, and then, you know, then the, then the rest of the water essentially flows through while, while some of the chemicals are stuck to, to the activated carbon. There's also ways to filter out um, chemicals and, and other different types of, um, of contaminants by doing something called um, reverse osmosis. You, that, that's, the, that's the type of the technology, the name of the technology. Um, and what that does is, is it filters contaminants using a membrane. It's usually, to, it's usually pretty pressurized um, and it traps a good amount of contaminants and lets, lets out more clean water. So I actually feel like a lot of people have seen or heard of these treatment methods, but maybe not actually knew the names of them. For example, in a lot of at-home water filters, like the pitchers that people use, they have granular activated carbon. That's why sometimes you might see little black particles in your water. That's the activated carbon. Reverse osmosis is probably less common or imaginable, but it is a term that I know I heard in early science classes and maybe other people have too. So as you mentioned, in water treatment, reverse osmosis sends the water through a semi-permeable membrane that traps the tiniest impurities so that only water can go through. Besides maybe a few tiny pieces of carbon in water pitchers here and there, what are some of the real downsides or inefficiencies of these treatment methods? So the issue with, with those two types of technologies, adsorption, where the, where the contaminants adsorb or stick to carbon or resins, versus reverse osmosis, the way she uses a membrane. But what's similar between those two uh, is that there is waste left over. And that waste needs to be disposed of or treated further. And that's, it's, a, it's a big issue because if you have activated carbon or some other kind of adsorbent and you're sticking chemicals to it and then you're just throwing those chemicals away, then they're going either to a landfill or maybe potentially to an incinerator. Um, and they're essentially going back into the environment for the most part. Um, and that's a really big issue. And same thing with, with reverse osmosis with those membranes. Um, there's a, a brine, a very, very concentrated brine. So a lot of the chemicals are stuck in that brine. Um, and then that, that stream is either just let back into wastewater for it to go through the treatment plant, which is typically not equipped to remove a lot of the more recalcitrant and um, non-biodegradable compounds. So there's a lot of efficiencies, but also inefficiencies in existing technologies. 
So these conventional water treatment methods are essentially efficient at removing chemicals temporarily, but inefficient at removing them permanently from the environment down the line. Can you explain a bit more about this process and the waste that is generated from water treatment? Yeah, considering the full cycle, let's let's say you have um, some kind of filter at home and you are filtering out contaminants and then you throw that filter away. That goes into the garbage, which goes to a landfill. And you think about all those people who have those same types of filters and all the other waste that's, that's there inside the trash bag. And, and especially if it's coming from um, industrial, you know, industrial like factories. There's a lot of chemicals, a lot of waste there. What happens is once it gets to the landfill, it will rain, right? It's, it's inevitable. At some point, it's going to rain. And over time, those contaminants start to leach. And the water, the concentrated water that's formed from that, from that rainfall is called leachate. Now, leachate is nasty. <laughs> it's filled with all different types of chemicals and metals and just nasty stuff. And the, the standard way of treating that is, you know, running it through filters again um, and actually putting the waste back into the landfill and just continuing to treat and putting it back into the landfill or um, shipping a lot of that leachate, um, that, that concentrated waste, to a wastewater treatment plant. And most wastewater treatment plants aren't designed to treat leachate. So there's actually, they charge a pretty good surcharge um, often. The wastewater treatment plants will charge the, the municipality a surcharge to treat their, their waste. So there's a pretty big push in the industry to have really good destruction of the contaminants on site so that they're not going back into the landfill and they're not going to the water treatment plant. Let's really think about this. So even in water treatment processes that are designed to remove waste chemicals and contaminants in water, there is waste created. Think about that. And that waste is not only created, but when it's thrown away, it can contain higher concentrations of those very chemicals that were removed from the water to begin with. This waste makes its way into landfills where those chemicals leach out into water resources or are shipped away from the landfill to be treated. In some industrial settings, the wastewater is then transported to wastewater treatment facilities where even more resources are utilized to treat the contaminated water. This is not a sustainable practice. Removing chemicals temporarily, only then to be reintroduced to the environment down the line, is shocking. The fact that wastewater is transported to treatment facilities instead of being treated on site seems like such a misuse of resources. These inefficiencies show a definite need for a better, more sustainable, and more efficient technologies in water treatment. In the beginning of this episode, I mentioned three things that we needed to understand before we could dive into the technology that Julie has created. We needed to understand the water cycle, types of water contaminants and different methods used to treat them, and the drawbacks or inefficiencies of conventional water treatment methods. So now that we have a good understanding and background of water treatment processes, can you please explain your technology, 
and your company, Aclarity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th- so our so our technology destroys contaminants. It doesn't just filter them into some other you know media that needs to be disposed of. And this is really cool because you can do it right on site, um, as you were saying. The technology itself um, is electrochemical, meaning that it uses electricity to generate chemicals to destroy contaminants. Electrochemistry involves two electrodes. One is positive and one is negative. It's like a battery, essentially. The positive is called an anode and the negative is called a cathode for, for oxidation, which is what we want, we want to happen. When you apply electricity, chemicals are being generated. So in order to power the electrodes, you, we use a power supply. So you can think about if you, if you have a knob that controls voltage. Um, if you start at low voltages, then we, then we produce chlorine, chlorine dioxide, and a lot of other chlorinated species. These are, these are chemicals that are really good at, at degrading some kinds of, of chemicals and, and compounds. And then when you increase the voltage a little bit more, you start to see um, ozone being generated, um, hydrogen peroxide being generated. These are a little bit stronger than some of the, the chlorinated um, oxidants. Increase the voltage a little bit more, and you'll start to see what we call advanced oxidants. An example of that is called a hydroxyl radical. It's missing an electron, and it basically degrade anything that's right next to it so it can get its electron back, and so it's really strong. And then finally, when you increase the voltage a little bit more, you turn that knob, increase it to, you know, 10 or 15 volts, you'll start to see electrons. These are just electrons that go back and forth from the anode to the cathode. And those are strong enough to mineralize very, very recalcitrant, very strong um, chemical bonds. Um, an example of that is PFAS that I was talking about before. That's that Teflon chemical is really, really strong. The carbon-fluorine bond in PFAS is the strongest known in nature. There's no half-life to, to PFAS, which is really insane to think about. And so we're able to break that carbon-fluorine bond when we, ha- we have high voltage. And then the rest of the fragments that are generated are degraded by some of the other um, um, oxidants that we generate, like hydroxyl radicals, like ozone, like chlorine. So that's essentially how, from for on a technical side, that's that's how the technology works. Now we have um, we manufacture uh, reactors right now, um, and you know what we're able to do is we're able to stack multiple reactors in order to handle large flow rates. Um, and the wa- so essentially the water flows in, it's oxidized, so the chemicals are, are degraded, the you know, bacteria and viruses are disinfected, and the water flows back out and it's clean. And, and it's, um, it's really exciting because we can treat right on site, degrade the chemicals, you know, and, and discharge right, you know, right back into, um, into the sewer, for example. Aclarity is the name of the company that Julie is the CEO and co-founder of. This is where they manufacture and continue research and development on the technology she described. Just to summarize and recap this technology, the Aclarity reactors work by way of electrochemistry. Electrochemistry in this scenario utilizes a power source that, at lower voltages, generates powerful chemicals like chlorine, at higher voltages produces oxidants like ozone, 
and at even higher voltage levels produces electrons. Chemical compounds are held together by strong bonds at the microscopic level. Julie mentions the carbon-fluorine bond in the contaminant PFOS as being one of the strongest chemical bonds in nature. By utilizing electrochemistry to degrade these bonds, these chemicals are not just treated or filtered, but they are destroyed. If you're still not following, that is more than okay. Electrochemistry is a truly complicated process. What is easier understood outside of the technical process is the immense benefits that this technology brings that solves a lot of the problems with conventional water treatment. Julie, the Aclarity technology is destroying contaminants through electrochemistry, ensuring that the water is not only clean, but there is no byproduct or waste generated. In addition, industrial and manufacturing facilities can use this technology on-site, which eliminates the need to use unnecessary resources by transporting contaminated water to treatment facilities. On top of that, these reactors have been proven to destroy PFOS, which is one of the strongest chemical bonds in nature and a contaminant of emerging concern. Yes, that's right. That's right. It's exciting because we can treat PFAS. We can we can destroy PFAS, which is really cool, and we can do it at a, at a pretty good price point. Um, the customer doesn't have to worry about disposal. Amazing. So a clarity is used mainly in industrial waste treatment right now. Is that right? That's right. Where is a clarity now and where might you take it? So we have the ability to scale this to municipal sizes if, if we wanted to. Um, right now, you know, we've had a, we've had a lot of luck with it's not luck really but um not luck really we <laughs> probably lots of hard work <laughs> yeah um we've gotten into the industrial sector and we're, we're working with a lot of partners these are you know other technology providers and um you know integrators engineering firms other manufacturers um who work directly with the end users um, these are the, you know, the factories, for example. But we have the ability to scale this up to municipal scales. At that point, it's really just understanding a little bit more about our cost. Um, I call, we call this the economies of scale, um, just making sure that we can be competitive at very high fluorides. These are MGD or million gallons per day fluorides. I applaud you and your team so much for developing and continuing to develop these much-needed technologies and really making a difference in the water treatment industry. So I have one last question for you. What advice do you have for young professionals and people looking to get involved in environmental science, engineering, and the water industry? Yes. Um, one, I think it's an amazing career. You're doing something that's you know, good for public health and the environment. You can make a good living, you know, doing that. Um, and I think my, my biggest piece of advice is to find people that you can talk to who are in the industry. You know, find mentors um, and take internships at different companies so you understand what you, what you like and what you don't like. Um, and if you're early in college, it's okay to change your mind. Like I said, I, I changed my mind. I ended up graduating with two degrees, the policy degree and the engineering degree, but I didn't change my mind to 
go for engineering until I was going into my junior year. I'd already done half of my college, you know, schooling. And, um, and that's okay. Like it's, it's okay to, to not know what you want to do. But um, my best advice is talk to people who are in the industry, make, make an effort to, you know, update your LinkedIn profile and, and um, uh, target people yeah, on LinkedIn um, reach out to companies. I mean, don't be afraid to cold call or, or cold email. Um, we really, I, I love, I love when I get emails from people, you know, asking, uh, asking for advice or support or, or whatnot. I think, um, uh, most, most professionals are willing to help young people and, uh, young people need role models. I think that's really important. That was great advice. You have been the best guest, and thank you so much for coming on the Save the Water podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that. This is, this is really wonderful. Appreciate the invite. You can find more information about Aclarity at aclaritywater.com. That's A-C-L-A-R-I-T-Y, water.com. You can also follow them on LinkedIn and Twitter or find more information on savethewater.org and Save the Water's social media platform. Every episode, I will bring you one fact about water that has been researched and verified by our education team here at Save the Water. So, did you know? Plastic pollution has been found at the deepest part of the ocean. The Mariana Trench is a crescent-shaped trench in the Pacific Ocean, just west of the Mariana Islands. It's created by one tectonic plate sliding under the other, with a maximum depth of 36,070 feet, or 10,994 meters. That's deeper than the height of Mount Everest. The organisms in the Mariana Trench live under crushing pressure and never-ending darkness, as it is much too deep for the sunlight to reach. Unfortunately, scientists have also found plastic pollution in the deepest part of the ocean. Researchers studied pictures taken by a deep-sea submarine and found a plastic bag on the seafloor. Plastic bags break down into microplastics over time, but this process needs sunlight. They will stay in that environment for decades. Chemicals from plastics have also been found in the bodies of the animals living in the trench as well. Stay tuned for the next episode where I talk with a very special guest who is working hard to solve the oceanic plastic pollution problem. All of us here at Save the Water would like to thank you for your support and for taking the time to listen. As we continue to navigate through these rough waters, the best thing we can do is to stay educated. One of the ways that you can do that is by going to our website, savethewater.org, where you can find more information, content, and ways that you can contribute or donate to the organization. Please join us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Save the Water. This podcast is created entirely by volunteers hoping to gain sponsorship for the Save the Water organization. So if you find that this podcast was useful and interesting, kindly donate at savethewater.org or on anchor.fm forward slash save the water. Thank you again and stay healthy, safe, and take care of each other. See you next time.